0: Acts somewhere in the vicinity of chapter 20, right? And you're going, come on, Pastor, a little more detailed than that. <clears throat> in the past several weeks, try as I might to avoid it, while most of the nation was captivated by a certain trial uh, in South Carolina. It has finally ended, thankfully. I can now watch Fox News without it being the trial. It was a sad trial really was, an extremely prominent lawyer from a well-respected, long-standing family in South Carolina, was accused of murdering his wife and son. And, of course, in the process of his arrest and all those things that led up to the trial, it was learned that he had stole some $9 million from his law firm and all these other things that he had done. So it was a sad trial. This past Thursday evening, it took just three hours, actually, I think I've read it, it took 45 minutes, but uh, after three hours, the jury uh, was in and the guilty verdict was guilty on all counts. Friday, he was sentenced to life in prison, double sentence, actually. The judge, I didn't hear it or read it all, uh, the judge apparently was um, quite critical of this guilty man and what would we say? Let them have both barrels. Justifiably so. Trials are in the Bible. Actual court trials are in the Bible. Um, There are several of them mentioned. It might be nice to know just how many. That would be something uh, a Bible scholar here could do for me and report back next Friday. That would be good. (laughs) There's a very significant... Now, I'm going I'm to make some, I'm going to, I've coined a couple of, <laughs> okay, I'm in trouble already. <laughs> I'm going to use a couple of terms that I've kind of created, and you're going to go, huh? Through the course of what we're going to look at tonight. There is a significant non-trial trial. There's one in the book of Acts that I thought we might spend a few minutes on, so let me get us up to that particular event. Paul had made his way back to Jerusalem, much to the chagrin of the pastors and leaders at Ephesus who saw him off on the boat in a very teary farewell in Acts chapter 20, verse 37 and 38. So are you there? Acts chapter 20, somewhere around uh, chapter 20, verse 37, they all wept sore, fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spake that they should see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. Okay, Paul gets arrested shortly after his arrival in Acts chapter 21, verse 27. Acts twenty-one, twenty-seven. when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were in Asia when they saw him in the temple stirred up all the people, and they laid hands on him. He is taken in chains to the castle where he is allowed to give a public defense we would say an apology a defense in acts 22:24 we read that the chief captain commanded that paul be scourged and as they were preparing to whip this paul beat him perhaps for i'm not certain of this but it seems to me the only time in his public ministry he appealed to his roman citizenship And he said, is it lawful for you to beat me being a Roman? Acts 22, verse 24. The chief captain commanded him to be brought into the castle and bid that he should be examined by scourging. Isn't that an interesting phrase? You examine him by scourging him. It's torture to get him to confess. That's what that boils down to that he might know that whereof they cried against him. And as they bound him with the thongs, leather thongs that they would have, first century version of handcuffs, Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? And you can almost, I'm not very good at this, get you to picture this, see the color drained from this Roman's face. I'm about to scourge a Roman citizen without a trial. Uh Uh-oh. And so chapter 23 begins with Paul before the Sanhedrin. Now, that's a Jewish ruling body. And that didn't go very well. So the chief captain now finds himself rescuing Paul. What a turn of events. The Romans were going to scourge him. Now they've got to go rescuing him from the angry Jews. And the center section of chapter 23 details how God protected Paul because the Romans transported him with 200 soldiers, 200 spearmen, 70 horsemen on a visit to see Felix the governor. Look at verse 23 and 4 in chapter 23. And he called unto him two centurions saying, make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea and horsemen, three score and 10, that's 70 and spearmen, that's 200 more. By my count, that's 472 guys. And when are they going to do it? At 3 a.m. Provide them beasts that they may set Paul on him and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. So we've gone from all those, I'm not going to go through it again, all those things that we just saw about Paul. This is the journey that gets him before Felix. Chapter 24, verses 10 through 21 as some time passes, Felix says, Okay, I'll hear you again, and then he's before him again in chapter twenty four, in verses twenty-five and twenty-six. Jump ahead two years. Paul is before Festus, and it is at this time that Paul appeals to Caesar. I'll tell you, justice moved there just about as fast as it moves here. This is a quite a process. And this starts the process where Paul is now standing in the pa- chapter we're going to look at, chapter 26. He's standing before King Agrippa. And this is where we're going to spend a few minutes. Your Bible may say at the top of that chapter, chapter 24, Paul before Felix. Excuse me, did I say 24? I meant 26. Chapter 26, here's what my Bible says. Paul's defense before Agrippa. Okay, there's a problem with that. This is not a trial. So it really can't be a defense. But it is a defense in the theological sense. I told you I was going to baffle you. It's not a trial, it's a hearing It's a hearing before King Agrippa because Agrippa wants to become acquainted with Paul's case, with Paul's argument, with Paul's apologia, his defense. So this is where we start. Verse 1, chapter 26. Then Agrippa said to Paul, thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth his hand and answered for himself. Okay. You probably don't view it this way. I probably hadn't for a long time. This is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for Paul. Opportunities can come to me, to you, in the most unusual times and places. I dare say if any of us were before the bar of justice, we would view it as an opportunity. But Paul did. And when opportunities come, we'd better be ready for them. We had better be ready. This is the purpose of our Wednesday night review of the Bible, of the verses that we would need to be ready. We had better be ready. Look at verses 2 and 3. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused By the Jews, it says of in the King James would be by the Jews, especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore, I beseech thee to hear me patiently. King Agrippa, thank you for this opportunity. I am happy, the text says, we'll talk about that word in a minute, to be standing here before you. But get ready, this is going to take a while. Really, that's what that last phrase is. I beseech you to hear me patiently. So Paul opens with a positive and complimentary statement. This is good. I'm happy to be here. He is happy, verse 2 says. Happy is the word that is usually translated in your King James, in your Bible, blessed. 44 times that word is translated blessed, and only 5 times is it translated happy. Paul is saying this is a blessing. This is a blessing. I'm blessed to be here, Agrippa. Wow. Book of verse 3. Then Paul compliments the king. Agrippa, I know you are an expert, a learned man in all matters Jewish. I don't read a lot of our critics. I, I, I don't care to read a lot of our critics. I'd rather read the Word of God. I'd rather read people who've written about the Word of God that are conservative and fundamental and dispensational. But when I have read some of our critics, they know more than we think they know because they know where to try and, and, and attack our system, our faith, don't like the word system, slipped out. They know where they think are our weak spots. And I'm going to tell you, sometimes those are our weak spots. So we're back to the very beginning. When an opportunity arises, we must be ready. So here's where he starts. Look at verse 4. This is Paul. And we're not going to go through the whole thing tonight. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, All the Jews know it. My reputation precedes me. My testimony is there. Everybody knows me. Which knew me from the beginning, verse 5, if they would testify that after the most strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God, look at that unto our fathers. That we're not going to take the time to go into that state. That is a condemning statement of the Jews. There, there's also some irony there, we'll look at that. Unto which promise are twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused of the Jews. So first, Paul had a reputation in the eyes of Judaism, and it was an impeccable reputation. He was a Pharisee. All the Jews knew Paul, and they all knew what and who he was. He was a Pharisee. In Philippians, Paul described himself this way. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinks that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. You can't get any better or higher in Judaism than that, unless you're Moses. Now that's about it. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I'll tell you, when Paul states it all like that, I figure that, you know, he could enter the kingdom on a chariot. If that's what got you in there. In verse 6 of our passage there, the charges leveled by his own countrymen... And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. What is most significant in this statement by Paul is the connection between Judaism and Christianity. The hope of the promise made by God unto our fathers. What is the promise? The Messiah. And what was the Messiah going to do? Bring redemption, redeem Israel. It was redemption through the Messiah. In different words, salvation via the Messiah. On a personal level for Jews and a national level for Israel. Constable put it this way. Paul said that it was because of his Jewish heritage, not in spite of it, that he believed and preached what he did. What did he believe and preach? The gospel of Jesus Christ. The Jewish hope finds fulfillment in the Christian gospel. What do we say about a a Jew who genuinely comes to Christ? He's about the most 100% completed Jew you can find. It was therefore ironic that the Jews of all people should have charged him with disloyalty. Paul was living... According to God's promises and Israel's hope, far more than the Jews who were accusing him were doing it, were living it. Acts 26, 7. Look there. Unto which promise are twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. They hope to come. I'm already there, Paul could say. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of or by the Jews. Paul has been consistent, would be a good word, in his loyalty to the Jewish hope. He's been consistent in it, whereas verse 8 implies that his fellow Jews, his accusers, are strangely inconsistent. They have not been. What the people earnestly desire, the focus of their hope, was rejected when he arrived in their midst. 30-some years before Paul's day right here. Wow. John 1, 11 says, He came unto his own, and his own received him. Not. But it's verse 8 that we want to spend some time on. Not that we haven't spent some time on this, but verse 8. Paul then asks this question. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead. Remember, Agrippa is well learned in all things Jewish. Paul brings into his comment a question about the big R word. Resurrection. Resurrection. The question is about the resurrection and it perfectly and properly fits because the resurrection is the one singular event that separates Paul from his Jewish accusers. It's the one thing. So let's look at that verse a little bit more deeply. Note the first thing, the change in Paul's language. Why should it be thought a thing incredible to you? To you. Paul asked the question specifically for and of Agrippa. Why do you think, King Agrippa, that the resurrection is an incredible thing? Why do you think that? See, what did we start out saying this was for Paul? An opportunity. Opportunity. And Paul is taking this opportunity to challenge Agrippa on what Agrippa thinks he knows. Agrippa is like the rest of the Jews. He's not Jewish, but he is like them. In that he thinks he knows, but he doesn't. Above all, Paul was the consummate evangelist. While this event is a hearing about things legal, illegal, and so forth. Paul is constantly thinking about sharing the resurrection of Jesus. And isn't that what we should be doing? Maybe we'd see more opportunities if we were thinking more that way. Second thing, the incredible thing, is raising someone from the dead. Since it was common knowledge... Now, follow me. This is the first century, probably, well, Luke says it's 62, or Usher says it's 60 AD, whatever. It's it's still fresh. Most of the people who were alive when Jesus rose from the dead are still alive. It was common knowledge in and around Jerusalem that Jesus was not in that grave any longer in spite of the... Jewish leaders paying money for the silence of the guards and all that business and the rumor that this body was stolen. People, too many people, saw Jesus walking around. Wouldn't it be possible then, if Jesus was raised from the dead, for God to raise all believers from the dead? It's common knowledge. All the people in and around in Jerusalem had to know of Jesus' resurrection. No honest person living in Jerusalem or its surroundings could deny the fact that Jesus was not in that grave. Back in Acts 13, verse 29-32... through 32, When they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a sepulcher, but God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings how that the promise which was made unto the fathers... Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. He was buried. He rose again the third day. According to the scriptures, he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred at one time, of whom the greater part remain unto this present. But some are asleep, some have died. After that, he was seen of James, and then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Those are all eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not a story. It's not a fable. It's a real event. Many of those eyewitnesses God would later use to write the books of the New Testament. Paul's one of them by his own testimony right there. But, They've all died today. There aren't any more of them around. The record of their witness, the word of God, is now some 2,000 years old. The record is the Bible. And so today, many people are not willing to accept the Bible. They claim it's an old, unreliable, or that the evidence that is in it is all circumstantial. What they really mean is since there are no eyewitnesses available and since the record is too old to be acceptable and that there, whatever arguments we would present are therefore unbelievable because those, those evidences, those words that we would give are now based on circumstantial evidence. Well, I hate to tell you something. Modern man has come to believe that only hard evidence is acceptable. However, that lawyer in South Carolina, that convicted man that I opened with, was convicted of double murder on nearly entirely circumstantial evidence. No less than Judge Jeannie Periro said so. So there, <laughs> my authority. Any decent trial lawyer will take a case of circumstantial evidence only if the circumstantial evidence can an overwhelming burden of proof. Bought a book a number of years ago. It's funny. Jim didn't know this was in the message tonight because we talked about the book the other day. A former atheist homicide detector, J. Warner Wallace, wrote a powerful book detailing how circumstantial evidence can be very powerful and can convict He was a cold case detective, and he brought a lot of cases to trial where the evidence by that time had gotten old. People were no longer alive, eyewitnesses, but he was still able to bring convictions on the circumstantial evidence because it was overwhelming. The name of that book is Cold Case Christianity. He became a Christian apologist and an author, and a speaker in many churches in America today. From what I've read about him and read of him, he's conservative. Dr. Viggo Olson and his wife, atheist, medical doctor, going to prove the Bible wrong because he's tired of people telling him how it's right, became a Christian on the circumstantial evidence that he saw in the Word of God. The medical evidence he saw in the word of God. Things that Luke, a doctor, described, which turned Olson's heart. And he served the Lord for many years in Bangladesh. The circumstantial evidence for the resurrection of Jesus convicted him, like it convicted Wallace, of their sin of unbelief. And they turned, they repented of unbelief and accepted Christ as their savior. So Agrippa, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 15. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. The dead rise. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. If he's not raised, go find him. Can't do it. And if Christ is not raised, your faith is in vain. See how important that resurrection is? Without that resurrection, we're sunk. We're yet in our sins, Paul said in verse 17. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ, well, they're gone too. Frank Garlock, Ian Romaine, hopeless, gone, to nothingness, utter nonsense. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. My hope in Christ is in this life and it's in the next one. That's what the resurrection does. While it is not the oldest book in the Bible in terms of, of when it was written, Job is perhaps the oldest book in terms of Job and his family and those living in his days. It's believed that Job's, the events in the book of Job were pre-patriarchal, before the fathers, before Abraham was called out of Ur, the Chaldees. Job believed in a resurrection. For I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth And though after my skin, worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. So Agrippa, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? If God is the giver of life, cannot raise the dead how could he have been the giver of life in the first place doesn't even make sense so let me close with this of all the things that this life offers talked a little bit about that this morning knowing Jesus Christ is the best and most important thing you can do there is nothing that compares to being in Christ as Paul puts it In fact, Paul wrote these words, and we'll close with them, to the saints at Philippi. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of the sufferings being made conformable unto his death. That should be our hope.